Welcome to the new Fixing Healthcare podcast series, Diving Deep. I am one of your hosts, Jeremy Kaur, also host of the popular New Books in Medicine podcast and CEO at Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert was the CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He is currently a Forbes contributor, a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business, an author of the best-selling books, Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong, and Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients. All profits from his books go to Doctors Without Borders. If you want more information on a broad range of healthcare topics, you can visit his website, robertperlmd.com. In this episode of Diving Deep, I plan to ask him about the clash between intuition and science in medical practice and how the business strategy of hospitals is negatively impacting people's health and their pocketbook. Robbie, a listener wrote to say how much she liked our discussion about the incredible contributions that technology can have in healthcare, but asked if we could discuss the more subjective side of what doctors do. Where should the science end and the gut feeling take over? Jeremy, physicians are rightfully proud of the science of medicine and the art of medicine. Doctors are both objective scientists and subjective healers. The challenge is knowing where, when, and how to apply each of these skills. The best place to start answering the listener's question would be by highlighting how incredible medical progress was in the latter part of the 20th century. My grandfather died in the 1970s from a heart attack when he was still in his 50s. At the time, physicians didn't adequately understand the relationship between blood lipids and cardiovascular disease. They had only the most basic of medications to treat the fatal arrhythmias and weakened heart muscles that often followed a myocardial infarction. The recommended treatment was a week or more of rest in the hospital, mainly to be able to restart the heart when it stopped. A half century later, we not only understand the basis for cardiovascular disease, but we have effective medications to prevent a heart attack in the first place. Today, when a patient has an MI, interventional cardiologists can unblock the vessels and cardiac surgeons can do a bypass graft to restore blood circulation to the damaged heart. Jeremy, had my grandfather lived today, medical science would have extended his life on average another 25 years. The biggest problem of the 20th century was that we didn't know what to do, but the biggest problem now We don't consistently do what scientists and researchers have proven will make the biggest difference and save the most lives. Can you explain what you mean by do what scientists and researchers have proven will save the most lives? Doctors today have evidence-based guidelines. We call them algorithms that they can follow. And these algorithms resemble the branches on a tree. They tell the physician the most effective way to diagnose a heart attack in a patient with chest pain. They detail the optimal way to treat and hopefully reverse the problem a patient is experiencing based upon its severity. They include the best way specific to the age and overall health of the person to avoid cardiovascular disease in the first place. Research has shown that if every physician followed these algorithmic scientifically based protocols, 
every time Americans would live healthier, longer lives and experience fewer complications from both acute and chronic disease. Yet most doctors continue to believe that their own intuition is superior. They call these algorithms cookbook medicine, and they worry that if everyone followed them, everyone would become, in quotes, average. What they don't say is that that average would be fi far higher than the average that exists in healthcare today. Doctors believe that by following their guts, they can do better than these scientifically generated algorithms, but the data show most of the time they're wrong. You know, Jeremy, it's a little bit like the gamblers. They're certain they can beat the house in Las Vegas. They're convinced they're the exception, that they have a hot hand, but in the end, following the mathematical odds proves to be the most successful approach. Is this distrust of evidence-based algorithms unique to medicine? The answer is no. In fact, the field of behavioral economics has demonstrated how wrong people can be when they choose intuition over science in almost every field. Let's look at an example from the criminal justice system. Evidence-based sentencing, just like evidence-based medicine, has been shown to reduce the negative impact of human bias. Evidence-based sensing guidelines aren't perfect, but when they're followed rigorously, they've been proven to decrease recidivism, increase public safety, and improve rehabilitation efforts. But like doctors, most judges continue to believe that their individual judgment is superior to what these data-derived steps require. In fact, not only when judges have the freedom to follow their gut, do the harshness of sentencing vary widely from judge to judge, but also the prison sentences handed down by the same judge is swayed by illogical variables, including the time of day and the weather. Researchers identified that judges handed down harsher penalties for the defendants right before lunch and lighter sentences after their bellies were full. Likewise, rainy days led to worse punishments than sunny days. These are all illogical. The problem with following intuition isn't that it's never correct. The problem is we rely on it often and fail to recognize the major errors that frequently come from human biases. Can you provide some medical examples of errors in intuitive medical decision-making? Jeremy, researchers at the Oregon Health Sciences Center gave radi radiologists 96 x-rays of stomach ulcers and asked them to estimate the probability of cancer for each. Doctors had no idea that among the 96 x-rays they were shown, there were duplicate studies in the pile. The results, according to the lead researcher, were generally terrifying. Not only did physicians contradict each other's findings frequently, they all, each of them, contradicted themselves at least once. For further proof of flawed intuition in clinical practice, consider antibiotic prescribing. Using the most up-to-date research, computer-based algorithms 
can define when and whether antibiotics are helpful or necessary for a patient. But rather than rigorously following the science, physicians inappropriately prescribe these medications 30 to 50% of the time, thereby putting patients at risk of a life-threatening drug reaction and driving up drug resistance among bacteria. You know, it's one thing to occasionally deviate because of a truly unique situation specific to a specific patient. But when it's this common, that's a totally different story. Overall, research demonstrates that algorithms beat even the best doctors in nearly all areas for predicting the life expectancy of a cancer patient to the length of time an individual will need to stay in the hospital to the susceptibility of babies to sudden infant death syndrome, and so on, and so on, and so on. Are there some circumstances where intuition is better than science? Absolutely. But these are the situations in which the optimal approach is dependent on variations in the preferences of patients, not variations in the gut feelings between doctors. It's in these ambiguous circumstances that what physicians need to do is to ask patients about their values and about their perspectives, not to tell them what is best. As an example, deciding how much insulin a patient with diabetes should inject each day is quite complex. There are life-threatening risks of being either too aggressive or overly cautious. On the one hand, overshooting could lead to hypoglycemia, that's low blood sugar, and this might cause a person with diabetes to pass out and crash. It's a lethal risk when riding a bike or driving a car. But on the other hand, looser management leads to excessively high blood sugar levels, and these can harm a person's blood vessels and organs. This can increase the odds that a patient will die early of heart disease or suffer kidney failure or require amputation of one or both legs. In this situation, there is no scientific way to compare the two dangers. There's no clinical algorithm capable of deciding which is worse for a patient, a small chance of dying from an accident in the near future or a high probability of dying from medical complications down the road. And there's no way a doctor can determine which risk is preferable and which one is unacceptable. How tightly to manage a person's blood sugar that's subjective, and it requires an in-depth conversation with the patient. But once the physician understands the individual's preferences, then there is an evidence-based science to be followed in order to determine the safest and most successful way to achieve that goal. Can you give another example of where science doesn't have all the answers? Jeremy, the most powerful one is when patients and families are struggling to make end-of-life choices. Recent advances in medical understanding and clinical practice have provided doctors with the ability to extend the person's life almost indefinitely. But at what point does doing so prove overly painful for the individual and inevitably futile? How big a price a person is willing to pay for a one in a hundred or a one in a thousand chance of cure, 
that's subjective and personal. And of course, it varies by a myriad of factors. I mean, what if the person's 40 versus 90? Or if their child or grandchild is going to be married next month, and all that matters to them is making it to that wedding. Science can't address these infinite permutations. In these situations, algorithms prove useless. What the physician would personally do, that's irrelevant. It's in these situations that the art of listening becomes essential. Robbie, doctors today don't believe they have the time needed to engage in lengthy dialogues about their patients' hopes, fears, and values. What can they do? Jeremy, I concur that their current approach to delivering patient care doesn't provide sufficient time for doctors to engage in these difficult and complex conversations. With 15 minutes, physicians are stretched to figure out what's wrong and offer a treatment plan. That's why I'm such a strong proponent of creating clinical teams and applying modern technology. As a profession, physicians won't be able to end the current vicious cycle of having to squeeze more and more patients into a day unless they can transform how they provide medical care and find ways to leverage the abilities of other clinicians. Patients trust physicians with the most intimate details of their life and the fear and uncertainty that end-of-life choices present are among the most personal. Carving out the time needed to be with patients in these most difficult moments is central to the purpose and mission of medicine, but how? One way to accomplish it is by creating teams that include nurses and pharmacists and relying on computer-driven algorithms to maximize the care these teams provide. For much of day-to-day -day medical care, there's a single best answer and other clinicians besides the doctor can follow the recommended evidence-based approaches to provide it. Of course, no doctor working alone in an office has the resources to hire these other clinicians and provide the requisite technology. But groups of physicians working together can do so. All too often, physicians perceive the science of medicine and the art of medicine to be in conflict. I believe the art and science work best together, but that means figuring out which problems are best handled using one and which ones are best managed using the other. And the problem today is that doctors often confuse the circumstances when one is better than the other. Studies show that if all physicians across the United States strictly followed computer-based algorithms, deaths from heart attacks, strokes, and cancer would diminish greatly. They actually would decrease by as much as 30 to 40%. When it comes to these areas of medical practice, science needs to rule. But today, often, intuition dominates. But in contrast, when there's no single best answer, physicians must value the uniqueness of their patients and invest the time to figure out what these individuals desire. Here, the art of medicine is what serves both the doctor and the patient best, and yet doctors frequently shortchange this vital step. 
Robbie, when it comes to getting the best medical care for yourself and for your family, patients can ascertain the excellence of individual physicians based on their personal interactions by asking the nine sets of questions you detail in your recent book, Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients. But how can they figure out where to go when they need hospital care? Jeremy, you're right. It's easier for people to ascertain the quality of their doctors than the excellence of their local hospital. But as you point out, in order to select the best physician, they need to ask the right questions, and that can be uncomfortable. As an example, before undergoing a procedure, patients should find out how often the physician does the operation and whether there's someone else in the area far more experienced. And before agreeing to proceed, the person needs to understand whether there's a less invasive option and what the research shows about the relative chances of success. When it comes to hospital quality, there's just no one to ask. Hospitals don't post their infection rates or the incidence of medical errors. They don't provide a chart of outcomes after specific surgical procedures comparing themselves to other hospitals in the state. As a result, most people rely on measures like overall reputation and price. In general, as consumers, we typically assume there's a positive correlation between price and quality. We expect the $40 toaster to have distinct advantages over the $20 model and the luxury sedan to have superior engineering compared to the mid-range option. So it's logical to presume the same relationship would hold when it comes to hospital care. But in practice, this assumption proves dead wrong. High-priced hospitals don't necessarily deliver higher quality care. And the reason this correlation fails is that when it comes to setting prices, hospital administrators and their boards follow an unwritten rule, one that focuses on something different than excellence in medical outcomes. Can you tell listeners about that rule and provide some of its history? For most of the 20th century, hospitals based their prices on the cost of providing care. When prices went up, the added revenue went to hiring more support staff, went to recruiting top physicians, and to buying new technologies. Last century's patients and their insurance companies didn't mind paying more for better quality. Back then, they got what they paid for. Toward the turn of the century, however, for-profit health insurers began exerting greater influence over the industry. They had a goal of earning outsized profits for their shareholders. And they did this by cutting back hospital costs and imposing restrictions on care delivery. Hospital leaders countered this downward pressure on inpatient prices by buying up competing hospitals in order to gain greater leverage and market control. Once communities were left with only one hospital or health system, insurers were left with no choice but to pay hospitals the asking rate. As a result, the rule that the majority of hospital systems currently follow is to search for opportunities to achieve market monopoly and thereby maximize market control. 
Robbie, how far has market consolidation gone? Jerry, between 2000 and 2012, nearly 900 hospital mergers and acquisitions were announced. Over the next three years, 2012 to 2015, there were 1,600 additional hospital mergers and takeovers. And these numbers continue to grow today. As a result, the 40 largest health systems now own 2,073 hospitals. That's roughly a third of all emergency and acute care facilities in the United States. The top 10 health systems own one-sixth of all hospitals, and they combine for $227 billion in net patient revenues. This strategy has proven incredibly successful. Inpatient care is the single largest contributor to healthcare costs in the United States. Hospitals account for 31% of the total healthcare spending, despite the fact that the number of patients being cared for in hospitals today is much lower than in the past. In total, monopolistic hospital pricing has contributed to the 35-fold increase in healthcare spending that our nation has seen over the past 40 years, going from $353 a person in 1970 to more than $12,500 in 2020. Yet despite the soaring cost of healthcare, the U.S. currently ranks last among wealthy nations in practically every measure of quality and performance. That includes life expectancy, childhood mortality, and death during childbirth. Does that mean that hospital mergers are always bad? No. And that's the challenge, Jeremy, that our nation faces. If we want to make medical care more efficient and effective, we'll need greater economies of scale and the creation of centers of excellence. But achieving both is vastly different than mergers and acquisitions that focus on achieving monopolistic pricing. In the former, the mergers are designed to eliminate duplication of services and to consolidate low volume clinical programs into a single higher quality service. As an example, a multiple hospital system doesn't need a heart surgery program at each location. And patients would be able to have total joint replacements done more safely with better outcomes if a high volume of procedures were all done in a single location with a surgical team focused on that particular procedure and with highly skilled individuals, the doctors and the nurses performing it. But closing services in local communities even when better outcomes can be provided a short distance away isn't the most profitable approach, particularly when there's a competing hospital marketing to people living in that geography. Research published last month from a Yale-Harvard research collaboration for the National Bureau of Economic Research provided insights into this phenomenon. They looked at the most expensive hospitals across the United States. These are the ones priced 52% higher than the average. And then they compared the death rates for patients using them in markets where there was significant competition 
versus markets in which one healthcare system had near monopolistic control. And they discovered a huge difference. In places where hospitals vie for patients, higher prices correlated with a 47% lower mortality, for particular, particularly for time-sensitive medical problems like heart, heart attacks and strokes. But in concentrated markets, where there was only one hospital system, the higher prices had no detectable effect on mortality. This means that in competitive markets, you get what you pay for. In these competitive geographies, hospitals use their greater market power to differentiate themselves on the basis of improved medical care and clinical outcomes. They use the added revenue to hire more nurses and support staff, to launch disease management programs, and to invest in a variety of quality improvement efforts. But in the non-competitive geographies, the hospital systems don't do that. Instead, they let the added dollars fall to the bottom line if they're a for-profit facility, or they use them to fund construction of ornate buildings and beautiful lobbies if they're not for-profit facilities with well-recognized brand name reputations. This idea of monopolistic market control for hospitals sounds financially quite uh, remunerative. Uh, what about for doctors? Jeremy, you're touching on what is becoming a similar practice. As an example, radiologists, ER doctors, and others who work full-time for hospitals have figured out how to benefit from the same unwritten rule of market control. A study published in JAMA Internal Medicine examined the difference in hospital pricing when anesthesiologists joined physician management companies that are backed by private equity. Researchers found that when private equity becomes involved, the prices paid to anesthesia practitioners increased by a whopping 26% for exactly the same work. The reality is you can't run a hospital without anesthesiologists or ER physicians. And when these specialists band together, hospitals have no other choice but to meet their financial demands. And we're seeing the same trend in a variety of communities where private equity companies buy a part of the practice of individual physicians, including some specialists in cardiology, urology, gastroenterology, and then they use this newly acquired market power to demand ever higher prices from insurers for the services provided. And of course, the added costs get passed on to purchasers and patients the following year. So here's the thing, Robbie, this type of monopolistic pricing and lack of transparency wouldn't be tolerated in almost any other industry. What can be done about it? Well, you're absolutely right once again, Jeremy. And to break this harmful rule and help patients get better care at more affordable prices, let me offer two practical steps that government agencies could take. First, the Department of Justice, the DOJ, could more forcefully respond to merger and acquisition efforts. When a single health system buys up all of the hospitals in a town, the US Department of Justice has the authority to enforce anti-competitive laws. The Justice Department did so in 2020 when it sued Sutter Health for price gouging, leading to a $575 million antitrust settlement with the state of California. Still today, most hospital mergers 
get approved with little pushback and no mandate to improve quality or make care affordable. When hospitals merge with the intent to raise prices, the DOJ could step up enforcement and start reversing the status quo. Second, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, CMS, could create a comprehensive hospital quality scorecard. For years, CMS has collected some hospital data and they use it for the sake of determining hospital payments. And they impose financial penalties when patients suffer a medical error or are discharged prematurely. But this information is far from comprehensive. Hospitals, as you might imagine, are reluctant to make information on patient safety and clinical outcomes accessible and easy for patients to obtain. A solution would be for CMS to require hospitals and electronic health record companies to open their application programming interfaces or so-called APIs so that artificial intelligence software could conduct a much deeper analysis of all patient health records. This approach would obviate the protestations of hospitals that providing this data is cumbersome and fails to adequately account for how sick the patients are who use the facility. CMS could then publish a definitive hospital quality scoreboard that would allow patients and commercial insurers to compare current quality outcomes, patient safety performance against hospital prices. Already independent organizations like LeapFrog have done a great job of providing consumers with information in a variety of clinical areas. And the results, they've been eye-opening with many of the hospitals having the best reputations failing when it comes to preventing medical errors and achieving the best medical results. But these independent organizations must rely on publicly available data, and that's limited. This AI-driven, technology-based solution would go far beyond anything that's available and published today. Rabbi, I highly doubt hospitals will welcome these ideas with open arms. Am I correct? You are 100% correct, Jeremy. It's likely they'll vigorously oppose these measures. And as you know, hospitals have tremendous clout with elected officials. But there is growing recognition in Congress of the costs, both financial and medical, that this mega merger trend is creating. And there are elected officials becoming increasingly concerned. With the midterm elections ahead of us, listeners may want to ask their state representative and senator whether they support a more active role for the DOJ in limiting mergers that pose healthcare threats to their communities, and whether they would vote for approaches that mandated greater hospital transparency in the reporting of clinical outcomes and medical errors. Then hopefully, the listeners will remember the answers when they head to the voting booth this fall. If they do so, I'm optimistic that we could drastically improve the physical, mental, and economic health of our nation. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and we'll tell your friends and colleagues about it. Fixing Healthcare is now a weekly podcast 
posted each Sunday night, rotating our today's show, Diving Deep, followed by Coronavirus the Truth, and then breaking the rules of healthcare with a different guest each show, and finally unfiltered with Zubin Demania, aka ZDog MD, joining Robbie and I. Please follow Fixing Healthcare on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. Visit our website at fixinghealthcarepodcast.com and follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter at FixingHCPodcast. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare's newest series, Diving Deep with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Have a great day.